Hello, everyone. Welcome to a Millennial Learns podcast. Thank you all so much for joining me today. This is our Bible study Thursday. And so we are finishing up last week's talk about 1 Corinthians. So we're doing 1 Corinthians 9 to the end of the book, and then till we'll go until the end of Ephesians. So quite a lot to cover in this. There's a lot of good stuff. A lot of them, though, are good topics that I need to go look more into. Um, and we'll talk about it as we go, but like speaking in tongues and prophesying and women in the church, things like that. Paul touches on all of them in these letters, but some of them I need to go read a lot more to have a full like episode on some of these more controversial topics, because these are the things that have caused a lot of division in the church. These are how denominations split off people's views about these certain aspects, which I don't think the division in the church is good by any means, but a lot of the times these things that Paul wrote about are the core of some denominational splits. So we are going over the second half of 1 Corinthians all the way to Ephesians, and let's get into it. First Corinthians 9 talks about Paul's rights as an apostle. So he says that they should be willing to give up the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols because it, um, it shouldn't be a stumbling block to others. Like, so if we talked about this last time, but if you, he said, there's nothing really wrong with the meat sacrificed to idols because the idols are fake. It doesn't mean anything, but if it's going to be a stumbling block to others, then you shouldn't do it. He said that people should be willing to make that sacrifice. Paul is doing the same thing. Um, other apostles have the right to ask for financial support from churches, but he is not doing that. He does secular work to support his ministry. So he doesn't want to get any financial support in a way, like because it might get in the way of people believing the gospel he talks about this later too in some of his other letters that we're going to get into but he doesn't want to be lumped in with these preachers who are just in it for the money so he preaches the gospel for free um it says he participates in religious jewish religious life in the hopes of winning some of the law following jews and winning them to christ and then he compares himself to an athlete in a race it's a very very famous verse for like christian teens i feel like i heard this all the time where like especially going into high school and college where people are starting to dabble into things that aren't super Christ-like. says, uh, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets a prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have reached, I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So he's talking about to be disciplined, to have a goal and to run after it because this is like the most important race ever to spread the gospel. 
First Corinthians 10 says that their ancestors ate all the same spiritual food and drink and God was not pleased with most of them. They, you know, and he uses that as an example to not set their heart on evil things as they did. Some of them followed a lot of the rules, but then had a lot of evil in their hearts. Their hearts were set on evil things. He encourages them that God will not let them be tempted beyond what they can bear. And if they are tempted beyond what they can bear, that he will provide a way out so that they can endure the temptation. Tells them to flee from idolatry and to not be participants with demons. He said, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. So he's saying, stay away from all that idolatry stuff. You are reserved for God. He says that he has the right to do every anything, but not everything is beneficial. This is a common theme where it says like, yeah, you have freedom. You can do whatever you want, but not everything is good at the times when you thought, oh, I have so much freedom of you and you've done things only for yourself. A lot of times those are the worst times of your life, basically. And like, it's not beneficial to anyone. He said, eat anything without raising questions of conscience. If someone says this was sacrificed, then don't eat it for the other person's conscience. He says, you don't need to worry about your conscience. You know that even if something was sacrificed to an idol, that idol is powerless because it's not real. But again, if it's going to be a stumbling block, don't do it. And basically in everything you do, do it for the glory of God. Uh, He talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, the covering of the head in worship that a woman uh, talks about women covering their hair and says, judge for yourselves, is it prop is it proper for a woman to not cover her head? Would she be ashamed if all of her hair was cut off? So I think he's saying here to like, it doesn't matter that much, but basically they can just decide for themselves, I think is what he's saying. But I do know a few people on social media that I follow do cover their head like when they're praying or when they're in church so I want to look more into it about what the what we should be doing I guess Um, and then he corrects them on some incidents about the Lord's Supper that they're messing up really to put it bluntly Um, he said instead of everyone gathering to eat the Lord's Supper some are doing it by themselves so some are going hungry and some are getting drunk he says to eat all together and examine yourselves before you eat it which I believe is why for Catholics they have to go to confession or not have any known sin on their hearts before they accept the Eucharist because it says examine yourselves before you eat it Um, 1 Corinthians 12 says uh, talks about spiritual gifts and says, no one speaking by the spirit says, Jesus be cursed. You know, and you can judge by what people say if they're speaking by the spirit or not. He says that there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. Now, some people get uh, knowledge, some people get wisdom, some people get um uh, tongues. Some people get interpretation of tongues, but everyone gets it, their gift, their specific gift for the common good. And this all kind of ties in with the fact that he says that every 
body has certain parts that all belong to the same body. And likewise, we are all believers, part of the same body of Christ. And so we are each playing a different but important role in the church body. So there shouldn't be divisions. Well, guess what? In 2022, there are so many divisions in the Christian church. It's wild. It's not how it should be because he is literally saying to unify and to all be like kind of on the same page. And then he talks about how love is indispensable. Okay, then he talks a lot about speaking in tongues here. So he says, if I speak in tongues but don't have love, I am only a clanging symbol. If you have, oh, sorry, this is not the part where he's talking too much about tongues. Um, That's later. But he says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. So many people have heard this. This is like the list of all the things that love is. It says that love never fails. Um... He, so again, he important he emphasizes the importance of love. And if you have love, I mean, if you don't have love, you have nothing. Okay, 1 Corinthians 14, this is where he talks about tongues. So he the title of this is called Intelligibility in Worship. So he instructs them to eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, something I think we are lacking in the American church. So people are very, in like mainstream Christianity, very reluctant to accept the fact that tongues could be relevant today or the interpretation or the speaking in tongues. I think from this verse, that is not true. That's that's not the correct way. Um, But I think a lot of the, the churches that do speak in tongues don't do it how Paul talks about either. So let's go through this. He says, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. They utter mysteries by the Spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening comfort. Okay, so I've gone through many phases with my beliefs in speaking in tongues. I grew up, like, the the belief around me when I was growing up was that everyone gets a language like a a tongue and you say it basically to yourself to edify yourself just whenever you want I guess Um, but then someone in a public setting could interpret your tongues if they got the um, gift of interpretation so that seems to line up here but then when you read like the Passover and says people heard their own tongues being spoken, that implies that it's like a real language. So I've seen a lot of people on social media saying that they believe that you can speak in tongues today, but it would be like French or Italian or something like that. Like it would be useful. Um, some people think that that is a, the mark of you being filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people think, um, it's not for everyone, which I tend to agree with since it said like the spirit gives out various gifts for various people. It doesn't ever say everyone gets tongues. Um, But Paul here does say, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy unless someone interprets so, uh, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. So there will be a lot more about speaking in tongues on my podcast because I'm definitely going into this as a full topic. So just 
keep that in mind, but I would encourage you to go read all of 1 Corinthians 14 because it's all about that. Then he talks about having good order in worship, so only one person should speak at a time. He, he basically goes around the rules uh, of what a meeting or gathering should look like um, so that it's not just chaos. People aren't just interrupting them. everyone. He says to prophesy in turn. He says that women should remain silent in the churches. Now, this is another big controversial topic. There are some denominations that will not have a woman preach, but then there are also some who can become pastors, and that is very, very controversial in the church. I've heard an argument saying that this rule about women remaining silent in the church is just because of, like, to make a contrast between the pagan churches or the other religions around the time who basically worshipped women and had women women as like the center point so they were trying to create a contrast not sure if i completely buy it but um anyway we're gonna go into that on a podcast as well it said be eager to prophesy do not forbid speaking in tongues which I think people do wrong, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way, which I also think a lot of people do wrong. There have been a lot of videos that I've seen of churches that are speaking in tongues like crazy, like running around and stuff, and Paul also instructs against that. So, okay, 1 Corinthians 15, he is talking about how Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. He has raised from the dead and some people are saying that there's no resurrection and Paul says if there's no resurrection then our entire gospel is useless because it all rests on the fact that Christ did raise from the dead. And then he talks about the spirit or the resurrection body saying that like our physical bodies are basically just a seed that will turn into this plant and that you know that's the analogy so our these bodies are not in the final form of like our heavenly bodies um, this is the famous verse in this section in verse 55 where it says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Um, it says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters... Oh, wait, I cut off that part. But yeah, he's talking about how we have victory over death through Jesus because of the resurrection. Okay, and then in the final 1 Corinthians chapter, he talks about how he's going to collect, like make a collection for the Lord's people who are in need, and then talks about how he's going to come and he's planning to stay a while, maybe through the winter so they can help him on his journey, preach there, visit them, all that kind of stuff. And then he is, he gives them their final greetings, and that is the book of 1 Corinthians. So again, lots of controversial topics in there that I have made a note to write down to like go dive into speaking in tongues, women in the church, how to speak in tongues, all of that sort of thing. So that is it for 1 Corinthians. Let's get into the next book. Okay, so now we are in 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to read the intro like we usually do because it helps get a good context for the rest of the book of the Bible. So this is from the NIV. This is 2 Corinthians, the intro. It says, Paul's first letter to the believers in Corinth gives a glimpse into his deeply personal and tumultuous relationship with this gathering of Jesus followers. 
The letter we know as 2 Corinthians further reveals the triumphs and struggles that result when life in the present age meets up with the inbreaking reality of God's kingdom. Here we see Paul working to repair relationships, explain various changes in travel plans, make practical arrangements for collecting a gift for the struggling believers in Jerusalem, and directly comfort challenges to his own leadership by the self-proclaimed super-apostles. In the four main parts of the letter, each introduced by a reference to a place, Paul envisions himself in different locations, recalling or anticipating his relationship with the Corinthians. The single theme running through these sections is that God will comfort us all in our troubles, and we will offer this comfort to each other. This models the life of Jesus himself, who suffered first and then was comforted. Like the crucified Messiah, we are weak, yet we live in God's power. In the final section, however, Paul feels he has no choice but to make the Corinthians uncomfortable to help them face their present condition. But he ends the letter hopefully calling on them to rejoice in God's grace, love, and fellowship. <clears throat> So that is a very good summary because I was kind of shocked by the ending. I didn't, I made the mistake again of not reading that intro before I actually started reading Corinthians. And when he got into the part about the super apostles and like defending himself and boasting in his weakness and all of those sorts of things, I got a little bit confused, to be honest. Um, and I just had to go read some Bible commentaries and stuff because I was like, what is he doing? Um, and you'll see where that kind of takes the turn in the book. So we are in 2 Corinthians 1, and the section is called Praise to the God of All Comfort. So Paul says that he calls, well, Paul calls God the Father of all compassion and the God of all comfort. He says that God comforts us in all of our troubles, and we can comfort those in any trouble because we are getting this comfort from God. So he doesn't just comfort us just because we're supposed to use that comfort to help comfort others. He talks about how we also share in the sufferings of Christ, and so our comfort abounds through Christ. Like Just as we suffer with Christ, we also are comforted and share in that comfort. Um, and then he also talks about how the apostles, the apostles are under great pressure, how they were in gr under great pressure in the province of Asia. They despaired for life itself, he said. They felt like they had received the death sentence. Like, things were really, really tough when they were out traveling and spreading the gospel in Asia. But he has a very, very good attitude about it and says that this has happened so that they might rely on God instead of themselves in the, during that time. He said, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us. Um, then Paul talks about how he has changed his plans. So Paul says that he and Timothy have conducted themselves with integrity and sincerity, and they've relied on God's grace. Um, but he had to change plans, and he wanted to visit them again. God is not, he, he like drives the point home that God is not fickle like humans are, and he doesn't change or anything like that. His answers to his promises are always yes and amen. So Paul obviously is very on fire for God. He wanted to come back, preach again, um, and just had to change his plan. So in 2 Corinthians 2, he talks about forgiveness of the uh, for the offender. So it says to forgive one who has grieved you so they are not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, and you should reaffirm your love for them. He says that we are also an aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So 
we are to live our lives as an aroma of Christ, which I feel I've talked about this so much recently with like Bible studies and just people in my life about how I feel like the whole aspect of like how you actually practically live in Christ has just largely gone away from churches not all of them obviously but like the mainstream message of Christianity is like love and accept everyone love and accept everyone which we do see very very strong themes of that in this new testament like in Paul's letters he talks about love all the time he talks about how we need to love people and all that however he does not say that we should be complacent in sin and he calls us to be a better more Christ-like version of ourselves every day so that we are an aroma of Christ um so that's a little side note but that is like my big focus right now is actually looking at the times where in the Bible we he, we are called to be holy and strive to be Christ-like. Um, he said that the apostles do not peddle the word of God for profit, but they speak before God with sincerity. Okay, in 2 Corinthians 2.3, he talks about how their competence comes from God and there is this greater glory of the new covenant. So let me just read this section really quick. In verse 7, it says, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, so he's talking about the old law, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious had no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory which lasts? So he's saying the old law brought condemnation. It brought light to your sin. It was like very rule-based, you know? And if that even had so much glory that you couldn't look on Moses then how much more glory does this have? In 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about his present weakness. Um, he said that we have renounced secret and shameful ways. And then in verse 4, I'll read this little section as well because it's good. It says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we have for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Um, so the part that really stuck out with me there, it said the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, making it seem like it's a predestination thing which is kind of a common theme i see that a lot where it's like we are predestined to know this blah 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 so i will be doing a full episode on predestination and what my thoughts are because i really need to dive deeper into that i know like mainstream christianity pretty much doesn't believe in that but i believe it's calvinists that do believe in predestination so anyway i need to like read more into that but another part that i liked which is right after this is uh, verse eight says we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. 
we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Do not lose heart. Outwardly, we are wasting away. Inwardly, we are renewed day by day. So he is saying basically that they are weak, but Jesus is strong. He says that the momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. And so in their times of weakness, they are fixing their eyes on the eternal. So all that is very good to remember in our day-to-day lives. We may not be going through the level of persecution or the struggles of Paul, but we still need this encouragement for sure. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5 talks about um, awaiting the new body. So he says that our body is like an earthly tent, but we have an eternal house in heaven and we groan and we want to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. He talks about how, yes, it would be so much better to be home with the Lord because to be away from the body is to be home with the Lord. And so he's saying, yes, that would be better. We are all groaning and wanting that. But um, he says, we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So he does talk a little bit there about like works, about the judgment day, about saying, you know, you'll get what is due for you, whether good or bad. Um, But there is so much like talk about grace mixed in here. So, okay. Then he says that Christ's love compels us because they are convinced that Jesus died for everyone. He says that they should know the um, Corinthians who he's talking to should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for you and was raised again. And then he talks about looking at people, not from a worldly point of view, like they're just a person, but from a spiritual point of view saying that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. He talks about the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So he gives a call to action to be reconciled to God. All right, 2 Corinthians 6, he says to not receive God's grace in vain. He talks about his many hardships that he's had to endure up until this point. Um, and says that basically his heart has been open wide to this group of believers, but their heart has not been wide to him and Timothy, who Timothy is the one traveling around with him. He says to not be yoked together with unbelievers. This is like a very big verse that's referenced in Christian marriages or like Christian dating circles is to not be yoked together with unbelievers because what fellowship can light have with darkness. And so he warns them to like not get married to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus as well. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7 says that, uh, he says that we need to be purifying ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit. We need to be, uh, living in perfect holiness out of reverence for God. So again, this is where he does talk about holiness and not just grace and grace is great. 
Grace is a very, very important message and the reason why we are in right standing with God, but that should drive us to live a godly life. <laughs> um, okay, so then Paul says that God comforted them in great hardship and he talks about this previous, the previous letter that he had that said that it basically hurt the Corinthians for a while or hurt the Corinthians feelings, I guess, for a while. But now he has great joy in that because he knew that their sorrow or whatever the feelings were coming out of the letter, it convicted them and led them to repentance. So he clarifies here that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation like that letter did for the Corinthians, but worldly sorrow brings death. So he is making the distinction of like being convicted with something that you've done wrong and then that leading you to repentance. In 2 Corinthians 8, he is asking for a collection for the Lord's people. So there's, like the intro mentioned, there are people, um, there are believers in Jerusalem that are struggling. They don't have money. They don't have food. They're in need. And so he's asking them for a donation to help those parts of the church. He's saying, I'm not trying to like make you hard pressed or anything, but you have a lot and there are believers, fellow church members who are in need. So he's sending Titus to receive the collection and bring it back for the church. In 2 Corinthians 9, he is encouraging generosity and he says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. God loves a cheerful giver. So um, he this is a verse from chapter 10. He says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So part of this is saying that when they give generously, people's needs will be met and thanksgiving to God will be increased because people will be thankful that God has supplied for their needs through the Corinthian church. So again, very important about not just giving because he says like, you're free to give however much you want. It doesn't matter exactly how much you give, but you need to be a cheerful giver when you give. Okay, then from 2 Corinthians 10 to four, uh, to 13, he is defending his ministry. So he's talking about these super apostles that I mentioned in the intro, and they are trying to tear him down and say that he is basically wishy-washy in person, but harsh and very demanding in letters. And he compares this whole thing to a war, like a spiritual war that's happening. But he says, our weapons that we fight with are not worldly weapons. We fight with spiritual weapons and we're trying to demolish corrupt culture, warped philosophies, and these barriers against the truth of God. So they're also questioning his authority they're saying like who you know basically who is this guy that's coming to preach this is in second corinthians 10. um but he is saying like me and timothy are the same absent or present in letter or in person uh and we are hoping that as your faith grows 
you'll be part of our expanding work in our ministry. 2 Corinthians 11, again, it's just talking about these false prophets and Paul is saying how much he cares for the Corinthians and their salvation, but it seems like they're being lured away from him and, and their message of Christ and talking about how these eloquent false prophets and false apostles are coming and teaching a very different Jesus than what he did. And they seem to have no problem with that. Um, he talks about how they would not help him in his journey. Like these other churches had to supply money for his journey. And he says, yeah, well, I'm not going to accept your money anyway from now on because I'm not going to be grouped in with these false prophets who are just in it for the money. There's a lot of these false teachers that are preaching just to get money and just to have fame and all this stuff. And so he doesn't want to be lumped in with them. So he makes this statement that he will not accept their money anyway. So then he does this kind of sarcastic, like, fine, I've been, I've been driven to the point where I need to boast like these super apostles do. And he basically just talks about how he has suffered so much on account of Christ, how he's been flogged, jailed, all this stuff. And so he says, like, I have nothing to boast about. Um, these false prophets are accusing him of all sorts of things, but he is only going to brag about his weakness. Okay, 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about the time and he says it in the third person. So he, he's not saying that he this was him, but then from reading Bible commentary, I guess you can tell that it is Paul that this happened to, but he disconnects himself because he doesn't want to boast about it. So Paul tells about the time he was caught up into the third heaven or paradise and he heard things that he was not allowed to reveal on earth. Like God showed him things that he wasn't allowed to reveal on earth. Um, but God thought that he would become arrogant because of these profound visions. And so he gave him a stake in the flesh. This is also very common. If you have like a reoccurring sin that you struggle with, a lot of people in like Christian circles describe that as like a, a thorn in the flesh or a stake in the flesh. So we know Paul has some sort of physical or spiritual ailment. He never actually says what it is as far as I know, but God has refused to remove it from him even after he prayed about that. And so um, it's designed to kind of like keep him humble. And again, Paul just says, I will boast only in my weakness. And then Paul expresses concerns for the Corinthians. He talks about how terrible kind of the super apostles are, how, again, how he won't take their money and says that it's his job to provide for the Corinthian church, not them to provide for him. And he expresses concern that when he comes back, he's going to find all sorts of sin and bad things and unrepentance and be grieved for those who have not repented. So then in 2 Corinthians 13, this is the final chapter of this book, and he gives final warnings to say to them to examine yourselves and see whether you're in faith, test yourselves. Uh, he's praying that the Corinthians can be fully restored and he wants to build them up, not tear them down. So again, like the intro mentioned, he's leaving it on a good note and a hopeful note, but still he has shown concern. He he has shown concern. He is um, teaching them and helping to try to correct their behavior and helping 
them, hopefully to not fall into this trap with these false apostles. Then he gives his final greetings, and that is all for 2 Corinthians. All right, now we are to the book of Galatians. So it's another letter from Paul. Let me just bring up the actual intro so that we have a good ground understanding of what Paul is trying to do here and what the message is that he's going to get across. So it says, Galatia was a Roman province in Central Asia Minor. Paul traveled here on each of the three journeys he made to spread the message about Jesus. The Galatians received both Paul and his gospel announcement warmly, but later some people call, some people Paul calls agitators came and challenged Paul's leadership as well as the foundation of his teaching. So Paul wrote to answer the threat to his status as an apostle and to reaffirm the core message that faith in the Messiah is the basis of membership in God's new community. Paul doesn't open his letter by appealing to the apostles in Jerusalem. Instead, he insists that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul is compelled to share this revelation, and he notes that the other apostles support him. Paul then proceeds to his main argument, which is that Gentiles who have become followers of Jesus do not need to be circumcised. The new worldwide family, which had been promised to Abraham, is created by faith in Messiah Jesus, not by keeping the Jewish law. The biblical story had been pointed to this all along. But if following to uh, Torah is not the basis of the gospel, won't there be anarchy? Paul answers by describing what spirit-empowered life looks like in the community of Messiah followers. Paul closes by emphasizing the main theme of his letter once more. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Okay, so let's get into this. This one's pretty short and sweet. It's six chapters pretty manageable letter. Um, so he opens by saying that he is astonished that they are so quickly deserting Christ and turning to a different gospel. He comes out swinging. <laughs> um, so he curses anyone preaching a gospel other than the one that they had originally accepted. Like the intro said, they, ex like they accepted him warmly and accepted his message. And then they're kind of starting to get off course with these false preachers. He says, if you are trying to please people, you are not a servant of God. And then this is when he goes into talking about how, yes, he did not learn the gospel from a man, but from Jesus in a supernatural way. So he learned directly from Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Uh, he talks about how he was very zealous in Judaism before he was a Christian, and then he um, he was persecuting the Christian church. And so this big conversion by him was straight from Jesus. Galatians 2 is where he talks about being accepted by the apostles. So even though he didn't learn the gospel from the apostles, he went and talked to them and he said that they had nothing to add to his message uh, because he was preaching completely the correct message that they had also been preaching. And so he had been entrusted to preach the gospel to the uncircumcised or the Gentiles as Peter had been with the circumcised or the Jews. So Paul opposes Cephas. Uh, so there's some drama going on here. Let me just read this part um, because, or I'll just read part of it, but it says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before 
certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to save this and in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So this guy essentially is trying to convince them that they need to still kind of be living under the law and that righteousness can be gained through the law. But Paul is saying, if that's true, then Christ died for nothing. Like there is no reason that he died if you're still trying to live under the law. So in Galatians 3, he goes on to talk about how um, basically it's still challenged this idea. And he said, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? He said, those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And those who rely on the works of the law, works of the law are under a curse. But that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So he says, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Oh, it says, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean to say is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it is no longer, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Okay, so he uses this whole section to go and say that, look, here is the scriptural backing for what why we are justified now through Christ. You don't need to be circumcised to be part of Adam's, I mean, to be part of Abraham's seed. You only need to believe in Christ because the scripture talks about how um, the seed is singular, meaning Jesus who has come and died. And now you're part of his family and you're part of the heir. You're, you're an, are an heir because of your belief in Jesus, not from the law. Um, okay. Then he talks about how we're children of God. He said the law was our guardian until Christ came, just as like a minor is, uh, under a guardian until they're like of an, of a certain age. We were under guardianship of the law until Christ came. And now we are justified by faith. Now this faith has come. So we are all one in Jesus Christ and heirs according to his promise. Galatians 4 says pretty much the same sort of thing. In the beginning, it's a continuation of this idea of this guardianship and how we were guardians under the law. So it says, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you 
are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So again, that's just a sum up of we're not under the law anymore. Paul talks about how he is concerned that they're turning back to ungodly forces when they are now known by God and they know God themselves. And the Galatians used to treat him so well and would have done anything for him. But now, like, it seems like he's become the enemy because they're starting to turn to these false preachers. Um, so then this is more about the whole circumcision thing. And he compares it to the story of Hagar and Sarah. And it says... Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The, woman rep the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that, at that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So... People are trying to go get circumcised because they think that they need to be under the law still. But he's saying, like, do you not know who you are? You are free. You don't have to do that anymore. So do not, this is Galatians 5 now, do not let yourselves be burdened by the yoke of slavery. So you can, like, choose to be a slave to sin. But he says, do not let yourselves be burdened by the yoke of slavery. They want Again, they want to be circumcised because of the law, but he's saying if you get circumcised, then you're going to need to follow the whole law. You're going to be under the law because if you want to be under that part, you need to be under the entire thing. So it's he's not talking necessarily talking about the act of circumcision itself, but their attitude is that they can be justified by doing all the right things and they have fallen away from grace. He said, you have called to be free. Don't use your freedom to indulge in the flesh, but to serve one another humbly in love. He talks about loving your neighbor, neighbor as yourself, walking by the spirit and not gratifying the desires of the flesh. He lists many things that are contrary to the spirit. So like sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, all of that kind of thing. There's a very long list. And then says that the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then to wrap up in Galatians 6, he talks about doing good to all. He says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves that you might also be tempted. He says to carry each other's burdens, and if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions 
Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else for each one should carry their load. Um, he says, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Let us not be weary in doing good for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So, um, and then he says to not boast in circumcision, but only the cross of Christ. So this whole letter is saying like, don't fall for the people who are telling you, you need to still be under the law, be united and be in grace, be walking in grace instead of the law. All right. And for our final book of the episode, we are really tearing through a lot of material here. So again, I would encourage you to go back and read these fully because there's only so much detail I can go into, you know, like next year on the podcast, maybe, or whenever I get to it, if I add another day into the podcast, I want to go in like, and go way more slowly through these books. I like the Bible in a year, but especially with like Paul's letters, there's so much I could go break down like verse by verse that it's just not enough time to like go into the nitty gritty details that I sometimes want to go into. So um, maybe that'll be a future Bible study, but again, I would encourage to go read all of these for yourself so you fully get the word into your mind and heart. Okay, so Ephesians 1, he, Paul is praising, oh wait, let me read the intro actually because again, I feel like that is an important part. Okay, so here's the intro for Ephesians. It said, traditionally named Ephesians, this letter may not have actually been written to the believers in Ephesus. Some of the early, some of the best early copies of the letter don't include the phrase in Ephesus in the greeting. While Paul spent two years in Ephesus, this letter appears to address people Paul has never met. Paul here presents a twofold pattern, first explaining the new identity believers have in Christ and then bringing out the implications for their new way of life. God has brought everything together together under the rule of the Messiah, exalting Jesus above all things. Paul echoes a phrase from Psalm 8, God placed all things under his feet to show that Jesus is the truly to show that Jesus is the truly human one. Jesus fulfills the original human calling to rule over the creation properly. Jews and Gentiles have been brought together into one body with Jesus at the head. God is now creating one new humanity from all over the world through the reconciling work of the Messiah. This means Jesus followers must give up their former way of life and practice purity in daily living and integrity in their relationships. The reciprocal responsibilities of these in in and under authority are used as key examples of the new kinds of relationships God is expecting. Paul cautions his readers that they are entering a spiritual battle. They must arm themselves with all the resources God has provided until the Messiah brings unity to all things in heaven and on earth. Very, very good summary there of Ephesians. So it's, yeah, that's very straightforward in what we're about to go into. So Ephesians is six chapters. The first one, he is talking about uh, praise for spiritual blessings in Christ. He's praising God that... Um, he chose him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, which again is like a predestination sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so it says he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. So it says we have redemption through the blood in him. We were also chosen 
uh, to carry out his good works. So then he talks, he says that he is thankful and he's prayed and he's not stopped giving thanks for the Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, he says that they are made alive in Christ. He talks about how we were all dead in our sin. Now we are alive in Christ. We were deserving of his wrath, but now we are covered by Jesus and his sacrifice for us. It says in the coming ages, we will, in the coming ages, he will show the incomparable riches of his grace. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Again, driving home the grace message. He says that the barrier between Jews and Gentiles have been, has been destroyed and they can be reconciled because of Jesus. In Ephesians 3, he recaps how the Gentiles are now heirs together with Israel. Again, there's no more division between Jews and Gentiles. They're all members of one body. And then he prays that that God will strengthen the Ephesians through his spirit and talks about the immense dimensions, I guess, of God's love. And he says how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we will, than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay, then in Ephesians 4, again, it said, he says, Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Keep unity, be humble and gentle and patient and bear with each other in love. Now, I think we can all work on that. I get very convicted reading these about like gentleness and humility and patience and stuff like that. So definitely something I'm working on. Um, but he calls them to live this noble life. Um, he says that they he's equipped the pastors and the teachers and prophets, evangelists, all of that, so they can help build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to become mature. He said, then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, be blown here and there, by every wind. I think we've all had that feeling when we're away from Christ being like tossed by the wind and our beliefs are kind of unstable, but he says that we will grow into being mature believers in Christ, a mature body. It says from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So then he gives practical advice about what like how to live a good Christian life. He says, don't live as the Gentiles do. Their hearts are hardened. They've given into greed and sensuality and all of this, but put on the new self of righteousness and holiness. So again, that balance of like truth and grace, but also calling to live a holy life. He said, speak truthfully with your neighbor, build each other up until we all reach unity. Um, Oh, and I copied, somehow I copied that again also in my notes. So anyway, it says, do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Only what is helpful for building others up. And he calls them to get rid of any bitterness or rage or anger or anything from that old life that could be like weighing them down and keeping them slaves to sin. 
So this message continues on into Ephesians 5, where he says to walk in the way of love. Don't even let a hint of any sexual immorality or impurity be in your lives. There should be no obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, but rather thanksgiving. You should operate morally and in thanks and in praise to live as children of the light and to overall just be careful how you live and present yourself as a follower of Christ. This has been really a main focus for me at this point where I'm like, why am I saying the things I'm saying? Like swear words I didn't really think were that big of a deal. But I'm starting to, as I read all this, be like, I should not be saying these things because it's not building people up. It's not edifying anyone. It's not encouraging anyone. It's not speaking life. So I'm trying to get better at the words that come out of my mouth. Like I'm pretty good at like, uh, I guess positivity, but that seems like a weak word, but basically like speaking God's promises, but then like I'll swear, you know, and that's not a good representation. So that is something I'm trying to work on. Okay. The second half of Ephesians 5, starting at verse 25, is like a very, very popular one to read at weddings, at Christian weddings. We read this at our wedding. Um, And it talks about wives submitting to their husbands. But then everyone leaves out the part about husbands loving your wives. So I'm going to read the whole thing because it emphasizes so much how we should all be treating one another in the body of Christ. People act like this is an isolated verse of wives submitting to your husbands. So after that section, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So, a wife can choose who she submits to. I'm not just going to go around submitting to any old guy. That is why we have discernment and we choose, we are not yoked with unbelievers and we can choose carefully who we are giving that to because you should be submitting to your husband, but it's because your husband is worthy of the trust of that submission. So is he loving you as his own body and treating you like a daughter of Christ. Uh, Then in Ephesians 6, it talks about children obeying their parents. That is the first commandment that has a promise attached to it. It says, honor your father and mother so that you may, so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy a long life on the earth. But then again, it talks about not just children obey your parents. It says, fathers do not exasperate your children. So it always have unity. Slaves obey your masters, but masters treat your slaves well and justly and in the same way. So it's saying that everyone in the church, yes, there's like some give and take there. Um, 
and there's this like hierarchy, but everyone should be treated well and godly. Uh, then again, like the intro mentioned, he's talking about how they're preparing themselves for a spiritual battle that's not against flesh and blood. He says to put on the full armor of God. So it says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish the, all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then it says to pray on all occasions, and he gives his final greetings to Ephesus, or maybe not. Apparently the intro said that this might not have been to the Ephesians, but to whoever he's writing, he gives his final greetings. So that is the book of Ephesians. This episode was chock full of wisdom by Paul. He has gone through so much persecution and given and is still so strong in the faith. And I love this part of the Bible. I love the New Testament. I love Paul's letters. They're so good and really get me fired up about Christ. So I hope you guys all have an amazing weekend. There will probably be another Bible episode this weekend um, to kind of get further um, in the Bible so we can finish on time for our state's series. So I'll be doing the history of each state and like all the symbols and things like that um, in the order that they joined the union instead of alphabetical order. So that's coming soon. There'll be more Bible episodes. And then on Monday, we're doing a topic about the Michelin stars and the restaurants that have gotten them, what the process is, all that kind of stuff. So I will see you this weekend for a Bible podcast and then on Monday for our Michelin stars one. I hope you all have a great day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.